Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to again today talk about the kingdom of God. And we're talking about the kingdom of God so that you begin to understand what it is that you're supposed to be seeking. Because you're supposed to be repenting and seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. So what does that kingdom look like? What does the righteousness of God look like? How how does that operate in the world, but not of the world. And uh, so, to understand that, it may require you to do some repenting. In other words, repenting is thinking a different way. And the church today thinks, well, they think a lot of different ways, but uh, they don't always think the way that Christ was thinking, the way the early church was thinking, because they're not doing what Christ said to do, and they're not doing what the early church did, they're not certainly not doing what the early church got persecuted for doing. So what is it that they are supposed to be doing? <laughs> so that's that's the key question here, is what is the church supposed to be doing? And are you doing it? And so we're going to talk about eldership. We're going to talk about what elders are and how they function in the world and not of the world and how they follow the way. That's what Christianity was called, the way. How are is that early church similar to what we're doing today? And how are we similar or how are we different from what the early church was doing? And so I hope to put this together in a, in a series that actually can be like used like a course. And I've done some preliminary work on that. But right today, we're going to go through a lot of stuff that other people think about eldership. And uh, examine whether or not they are correct or whether or not they are completely incorrect or wrong. Or where they may be deviating from the way the early church operated. We have to assume that the early church... Because it had the direct access to Christ and what Christ was teaching, that the early church knew a great deal more than we knew. We know that Christ was talking to the apostles and saying more to them than parables. Because they asked Jesus, why do you always speak to the people in parables? And he said, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But it is not given unto them. Does that mean we are to keep the mysteries of the kingdom from them? No. What that he's really talking about is that the mysteries of the kingdom come to you by way of the Holy Spirit. It's it. That's how you are to understand and hear and realize and and uh, comprehend. The mysteries of the kingdom of God is through the Holy Spirit. Because God said that he and Christ said that he was going to write his laws upon your hearts and upon your mind. We find that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That is the covenant. 
that he's not going to write his laws upon the heart of a minister and then that minister is going to explain to you the mysteries of the kingdom. He's going to write his laws upon your heart and upon your mind. And that makes him your God and not the minister your God. You don't want the minister to be your God. You don't want your the minister to be the vicarious uh, filius deus, the, the substitute for the Son of God. Except no substitute. You want to know exactly. But, in the meantime, any Christian may rebuke any other Christian or individual seeking to become a Christian because as many as we love, we also rebuke because we we need to test the mettle of our own hearts and minds to find out if we are really accepting and this is a big question a lot of people ask. How do you know it's the Holy Spirit? Well, unfortunately, a lot of people think it's the Holy Spirit because there's a great deal of emotion involved in their belief system, in what they think is true. But that's not really what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is not really emotion. It's not about emotion. As a matter of fact, to tell you the truth, the Holy Spirit is often very unemotional and emotions really what you experience as emotions are actually chemical reactions in your mind caused by the release of endorphins and serotonin and and chemicals in your brain you know you you can be given uh, uh drugs that will make you very emotional uh, hormones can make you very emotional you know the release of hormones in your body for for lots of different reasons you know there's passions and and fears and anxieties and and when these things get out of control in your mind they release all kinds of chemicals in your brain that may make you very emotional that's not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not a chemical reaction in your brain the holy spirit is actually goes much deeper and so to understand whether or not what your experience is experiencing is the Holy Spirit or not, we have to go deeper than emotions. Yeah, there's a word, epistemology, which is a kind of a branch of philosophy concerned with the theories of knowledge, especially with regards to its methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology, it's also called the the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief in something. And we say we believe in the Bible. And we believe in Jesus Christ. And we believe in God. But you have to, if you, you know, to say you believe in God is not the same as to say you believe that there is a God. Uh, or that you believe there is the God. That there's one God. To, but, but to believe in God is to actually put your faith in that God. That God is now going to guide you. His Spirit is going to guide you. Because, see, you can create God in your mind. You can create an image of God in your mind. You can make a, a statue. You can make one out of metal or wood or, or all those things. But you can also... Create a God in your thinking. You know, I, I've built lots of homes and restaurants and 
different things over the years, and uh, I always build them in my head first. I, I draw them out in my head, and I'll draw them out on paper, and and uh, figure out how many two by sixes I need, and two by eights, and two by tens, and what size trusses, and and draw that picture out on paper. But I also draw it in my mind. And that's what we often do about God, is we draw God in our mind. We draw ideas like the church in our mind. And then we worship that image in our mind. We have faith in that image created in our minds. And we we actually hire ministers to help us create that image. Because, you know, it's a lot of work creating an image of heaven in your mind, an image of the kingdom of heaven in your mind. So, you enlist the aid of ministers to help you create that image. And then you worship that image in your mind. You believe in that image in your mind. But believing in God is goes much deeper than that. God is the thing that is moving the universe. Moved it into existence. Uh, his laws are written in the laws of nature. and Because he is the God of nature. He created everything. And so, to believe in God is to actually connect with that creative force. Not an image of that creative force, but the actual force itself. And the only way you can connect, really, uh, with that, that God of creation itself, is to connect with it on a spiritual basis. And when you connect with it on a spiritual basis... It is that spirit that writes upon your hearts and upon your mind. And it may give you an image in your mind of the kingdom of God and of the righteousness of God. I can only talk to you about it. I can't give you that connection. You have to seek that connection yourself. What's stopping you? Well, often the fact that you won't let go of the image that you've already created in your mind. So we're going to be challenging you and everybody that's listening and everybody that will listen as to the image that they have in their mind of God, the church, of things like eldership. And we're going to start off with the eldership thing because that happens to be the topic of today. But we're going to eventually touch on just about every aspect of your life and You just have to decide for yourself how far you will pursue this. Now, many people will listen to what we're saying and they'll immediately begin to alter the image in their mind. But you don't really want to do that because the only way you're really going to know God is to be still and know. You, You don't want to be creating that new image. Mostly what we're going to be talking about is going to challenge the image that you already have in your mind that is sitting up there creating a shadow in your mind so that you cannot really receive the Holy Spirit because you already think you've got it. So if you understand what I just said, you should realize how important humility is. I'm not attacking your delusion. I'm trying to get you to look at what you think and study, examine, Ponder, question, is what you think true? Or is there more to truth than 
you have received so far. And so, that means you're going to be setting down some of the ideas that you have. I don't know which ones. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of them that are incorrect. And so, I'm going to be challenging a lot of the ideas that people have. But I'm not attacking the individuals themselves. There's a lot of people out there that think they're ministers of the church established by Jesus Christ and they're actually preaching things that are contrary to the teachings of Christ. Some of that is the result of confusion. Some of that is the result of deception by others that have crept in and hopes that you might believe a lie. Uh, but I'm not attacking the individual. I'm, I'm going to challenge what a lot of individuals think so that they can use the information, the knowledge that I am sharing with you to test what they think they know, to see if it is really true or not really true. Which uh, takes us back to that definition of uh, epistemology, uh, which is to, you know, I, I... on our Bible page, I put a little definition of that, and it says, to believe the Bible, you will need to understand what the authors were trying to say in the context of the times in which they wrote it. So, you know, that's why we look at history so much. And that's one of the reasons why the world today doesn't teach history in schools. They stopped teaching history in school many, many years ago. I was on a roof with a guy who worked at a local school. And, and he was bragging about the fact that they don't waste students' time anymore studying history. You know, like the Romans and the Greeks. That it was much better in school today because they studied things like... Uh, and they sent the kids home with the assignment of to determine all the major college football teams and what their names were. So, And this was actually in a school assignment. And he thought that was way better than studying about Romans and Greeks in history. <laughs> Which is, I guess, no education is better than education. Well, I don't, I don't really believe that's true. I, I believe that if you don't learn from the past... Uh, you will be condemned to make all the mistakes the past made for you already. And, you know, that's that's one thing I used to tell my kids all the time, and now I get to tell my grandkids and great-grandkids, is that there's two ways to learn things, easy or hard. And the hard way is to make all the mistakes yourself. Uh, the easy way is to learn from the mistakes that others make. And one of the reasons for that is you don't survive all your mistakes. You may survive the mistakes of others. But then again, you may not. And that that's another thing, you know, I pointed out and shared with people today is that, uh, you know, there's some court decisions that have come down in the United States recently. Uh, it was a divided court, fortunately, but still it was the final decision uh, which passes it on to another court. Is astounding. So we need to challenge what we thought we knew about history, what we think we know about the Bible today, because it often is in conflict with what was going on in that early church. And we don't realize that because we don't know history. And so we're going to be touching on history a lot too. And I 
put on your humility caps because we're going to be challenging you on many different levels. And uh, and that's just what we're all about because as many as we love, we also rebuke. And telling people that they're wrong about what they think is kind of a way of rebuking people. So anyway, the uh, understanding that we're going to need to uh, deal with here uh, about biblical eldership and and one site that deals with biblical eldership, as a matter of fact, that's what it's called, uh, says that biblical eldership is eldership by the book. And I guess that by the book is the Bible. Uh, although they do sell you books to tell you about biblical eldership. So he didn't really identify what book. Maybe he does mean their book, which you can buy from them, called Biblical Eldership. We're going to put all this online so that you can understand and see what we're talking about when we talk about real eldership in the early church. So they also sell you a biblical study guide and they will also sell you a course, a 12-part course, and they will actually give you counseling, but much of that's going to cost you some money. They they do make a lot of stuff available for free. A lot of the places that I went and looked uh, online to find out what people think eldership is because that's what we're going to talk about first, what other people think it is. Uh, you couldn't find out what they think until you paid the money. Uh, at least this one site, there was a way to find out. You couldn't see it all, but you could see quite a bit and hear quite a bit without paying money. But they, it was really difficult to find out <laughs> sometimes where they stood. But we're, I've taken a lot of notes, and we're going to look at some of the things that they said. And one thing they said, it is not enough to merely have an eldership. The eldership must be actively uh, functioning, competent, and spiritually alive. Well, that's true. But it may not be true what you're thinking that means because you may not understand what eldership is yet. But what he said, eldership needs to be actively functioning, competent, and spiritually alive. He says, uh, they go on to say, the lack of elder and deacon training is an extremely critical problem. Well, most of that has to do with the fact that people don't know what an elder and a deacon is. What The training is telling them what it is that they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be doing it. And if you misidentify what a deacon is, what an elder is, you're not going to be able to tell them or they're just not going to comprehend what it is they're supposed to be doing. Now, we're talking about, when we talk about doing, we're talking about in general principles because specifically what you're supposed to be doing, you should be led by the Holy Spirit, by that still small voice, that that inner spiritual compass that's supposed to tell you, you know, do I go here, go there? Do I do this? Do I do that? And that's your individual ministry, either uh, motivated, you know, that's the, the faith is what motivates you, it what it, what moves you. That has to be the Holy Spirit because your faith, again, is not supposed to be in the idea of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit himself. It's supposed to be the Spirit of God actually leading you. How do you know if that's the Spirit of God that's actually leading you? By your works, by what you do. You know, if he's leading you to go out and kill people, that's probably not the Holy Spirit. That's not the Spirit of life. If he's if he's leading you to go out and deceive people, that's not the Holy Spirit either. 
so anyway, there's many, many levels that you can examine to understand if that's the Holy Spirit or not. And we're, we're going to be looking at a lot of those things and hopefully putting some of the pieces of the puzzle together there for you. It says, we erroneously believe that our serving elders and deacons understand spiritual oversight and care. Spiritual oversight in the church is the Holy Spirit. That is, that is the comforter. That is the one that is supposed to have oversight. You as an individual, hopefully you are listening to the Holy Spirit and you go out and rebuke those people that you think works is showing that they're not listening to the Holy Spirit. And hopefully they repent. But the the amazing thing about the gospel of Christ is that it's an individual walk. It isn't us following some ruler or leader. We may have people that are leaders, but that's just because they happen to be out front. When I was a small child, I followed my father, who was, you know, six foot four. And I was, you know, he was a giant. So I followed him because he was my leader. Uh, but now that I am a man, who am I to follow? And my father has passed away. Well, now I must follow my father in heaven. And you need to do the same thing. I don't want you following me. I want you following the father in heaven. If you're going to follow me for a short time, I'm trying to lead you so that you follow the father in heaven. And that's what Christ was always doing. He was always pointing to the father in heaven. That's what he was trying to get you to follow. And he said that he would send the Holy Spirit to the apostles because they followed him on earth. You are the ones who remain with me. And those ones who remain with them, with him, were the ones he appointed the kingdom to. And they were in turn to go out with his spirit. So the process of this becoming the elders and deacons of the church means that you're going to need to understand what the elders and deacons of the church are and what they do. We're going to talk about the, a number of other things. We're not going to go through their whole study guide and all that stuff, but they do put a, forward a lot of questions. And we're going to take a look at a lot of those questions and see if they came up with the right answers. And hopefully that will clarify things in your own mind as to what eldership in the church really is. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, when we're looking at this idea of elders and eldership, there's a number of things that the, these individuals bring out. And uh, and like I say, many of the things may be true. And I'm not questioning the intent or heart of the individuals who bring them up. I'm just going to eventually get here to the point where we're going to show you that what they're thinking and the whole thing that they're espousing is actually lending itself to the confusion that is bringing the church down and dividing the church and making the church something that it was never intended to be. And without knowing it, maybe, they have become false teachers. And they need to repent and uh, think a different way. And so it's not a question of sin, it's just a question of correction. And you may count it as rebuke, but I'm only doing this out of love. So they say biblical eldership is pastoral eldership. Well, that's misleading. Now, biblical eldership, whatever that is, which we haven't really got to the truth about that yet, 
has some of the characteristic of pastoral eldership. You know, how you take care of one another. How do you be a pastor? How do you be a shepherd? The work of the shepherd, you know, when I first started herding sheep years ago, I herded black-faced sheep. Black-faced sheep were farm sheep. They had lived inside of fields, fenced off for so long, they lost the instincts of what we call rain sheep. And when you would turn them out, they would go in every direction. They did not stick together. Rain sheep, free sheep, sheep that can go out on the range and travel over thousands and thousands of acres, they stay together on their own. Shepherd doesn't have to sick dogs on them to make them stay together. He doesn't have to run around them and keep them together. He doesn't have to tie them together with ropes and, and cord and twine. They just stay together on their own. So, that spirit built into the instinct of rain sheep makes the shepherd's job manageable. When I was young, I had, I had run, uh, marathons. I was a good runner, uh, but I cannot run around, you know, hundreds of black-faced sheep out on the range and try to keep them together. They will be breaking off little groups and going this way and that way. They don't stay together and there's, Many, many stories that I've shared over the years of how that was an exhaustive effort. So without that spirit of coming together, that pastoral spirit of coming together and working together, uh, the shepherd's job, the pastoral shepherd's job is very hard. So some of that spirit dwelling in the sheep themselves of staying together makes his job much easier. So in that sense, the eldership of the church is a pastoral spirit where the elders of the church stay together themselves. Now, you'll understand that more when we define what an elder is because an elder is not an office of the church. And I'm going to be repeating that many, many times because there are thousands of ministers out there telling you that an elder is an office of the church. Not so. The 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 church, uh, the Bible clearly talks about the office of bishop or the office of overseer or the office of deacon, even the office of priesthood. But it never says the office of elder. It just doesn't say that. It's not an office of the church. But it's an office of the family. Because, and you can go back in history uh, you know, you can go into other cultures, into other languages, and they all have this word that could be easily translated into the word elder. The word sheik in uh, Arabic, it means elder. The word senate or seneca in uh, the, uh, the uh, language of uh, the Romans means elder. And if you go back and study the history, and we'll, we'll look at some of those histories, but if you go back and study those histories, you'll see that they have always, these societies, before they became incorporated dictatorships, they often functioned for hundreds of years, and they depended upon a group of elders, which were the most respected men of the community, who were usually heads of families. They were respected because their families were intact. 
their families, their sons and, and grandsons showed the character of their upbringing. And so these men and their families, they had a family identity, were respected and they were, they had proven themselves by the works of their life. And they were called elders, heads of families. They were elders by circumstance. And they were chosen amongst all the heads of families in the community to sit in groups that were designed to unite the whole of community. They were to bring the whole of community together because information would flow up to them from all the elders of the community and they would sit down in a group and discuss that information so that everybody would know a little bit about what was going on over here, what was going on over there. In the news, uh, a town down in California named Paradise has been burning. Now, there will be hundreds of people that will be homeless. The businesses are burned up. Uh, people have died. And uh, that community is being absolutely devastated. It will not be able to recover simply by its own efforts within a hundred years of effort. But they will get aid from all sorts of places. They'll get some aid from the government. They will get aid from churches. They will get aid from other people. But in the kingdom of God, they only get aid through the government of God. Because they know all the other governments can provide aid because they force the contributions of the people. But in the kingdom of God, they talk about free will offerings. I just listened to a minister this morning who was, you know, he's always talking about, uh, you know, biblical Israel and biblical church and all this kind of stuff. But he talks about tithing as if it is compelled. It is compelled in the spirit. Who you give it to is completely up to you. It's And how much you give. It says right in the Bible, you tithe to them according to their service. It's not a, the tithe is not a tax. It's in place of a tax. And you give it to the ministers because the ministers of your church, the ministers of your congregation would probably be better said, are supposed to network together with all the other ministers out there that are seeking the kingdom of God. And if your community burns down, the information about that community burning down will go out through a network of hundreds, even thousands of ministers and the funds from all those different places will come back according to your need and help you out. And in order to create such a network, you have to give something regularly. But when there's a disaster, you may give more. And that it's just like, you're going to run a marathon. You start out learning how to walk and then how to run and then how to run a mile and then how to run two miles. And so that when you have to run that 26 miles, when you've, you know, you've got that real challenge ahead of you and in front of you, you, your digestion shuts down, your, your, uh, other things in your body shuts down. They're not going to be working now. Every bit of your resources are going in order to get you to the place that you need to go to run that marathon. And this is the same way with the body of Christ. You, but you need to be pumping blood through the body every day, every week, you know, all the time. You need to be breathing in and breathing out so that your body is functioning 
so that when you you have a, an important thing where you need to act, you have a body that is ready and fit to act. And you do that on a regular basis. You help out this community over here. You help out that community over there. And then uh, you help out one another in your own community. But then when there is a great disaster, you're ready to be there to help in that great disaster, help one another. And if you don't do that, you won't make it. You won't survive. I saw the movie uh, Into the Wild. And the guy didn't make it. He died. He had, you know, he's strong and healthy, but he got himself in a place where he was inadequate and incapable of surviving. And he ended up dying in, in the process of learning that doing everything alone is not the answer. You know, he, he was so enthralled with the beauty of nature and everything, but you don't see the beauty unless you're willing to share it. You don't obtain the value of the beauty unless you're willing to share it. And he realized this. He wrote it evidently in his journal just before he died. But that was the the, the thing is, is that he, he didn't learn that sooner. He learned from his own mistake instead of the mistakes of others. And this is what, way back in the beginning of the, the, the Testaments, it's telling you to cast your bread upon the waters. Uh, Moses said, love your neighbor as yourself. You need to do that in order to bring the Holy Spirit into your life. If you're seeking to be saved because you want to be saved, you're not going to find salvation. You have to be seeking to be saved so that you can help others be saved. That's the only way to obtain salvation. You lay down your life so that you may pick up your life more abundant. That That is a principle of the kingdom. You can't get away from that. You're not seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness if you're seeking just to be saved. You have to seek the salvation of others. And if you're not willing to save them and help them in their time of need so they continue on this earth, then don't expect God to help you. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. So back to biblical eldership. So there is a pastoral nature in the eldership of the of the church, but the eldership of the church is not the office of elder as a officer of the church, the called out. The elder is the head of a family. And yes, so all the things that these guys are saying apply to eldership apply to the heads of family, because the heads of family, their first flock is their family. But they have to care about the next family as much as they care about their own. You know, I was talking to somebody about love, and this is something I've, I say over and over again. You don't love anybody more than the person you love the least. Christ was saying this. I mean, what good is it to come to the altar of God and tell us that you love God when you still have hatred or anger for your brother? Leave that gift off and go and make peace with your brother. So you turn around and you you got to go take care of that relationship with your brother, with your neighbor, with the people down the road. In order for your love to grow, you have to love more people, everyone, equally. Uh, and because the, the love you think you have for your wife or your husband or your children, that's often an emotional love. And it will not go beyond, it will be stifled if you hold hatred and animosity towards others. 
So you need to be forgiving others and let God be the judge. That's not your place. You know, when remember also when you forgive somebody what they did, that's not absolution. They may still need to be forgiven by God. They they need to work out their own salvation. But you're not sitting in judgment. That doesn't mean that you should hire, you know, child molesters to be your babysitters for your children. Obviously not. It doesn't have anything to do with forgiveness. That has to do with wisdom. But you don't sit by and be angry and judgmental. But you will have to have discernment. Do you give to this person? They have squandered their money. They have squandered their life. They have squandered their energy. Everything that God gave them, they gave away and wasted and squandered. And now they come to you on the street and they say, help me out, feed me, take care of me. Well, you need to apply discretion to that. You need to uh, apply requirements to that. The same as you would when you're picking your ministers. And that's what Jesus uh, uh, talked about and what the apostles were clearly explaining in Titus and Timothy is that if you're going to be picking a minister, you should pick ministers with certain characteristics and qualifications. So, this uh, website says that biblical elders are required to meet certain moral and spiritual qualifications. He goes on, in order to uh, teach sound doctrine and protect the church from false teachers. Well, that isn't untrue. But you have to realize again, who's supposed to be teaching you sound doctrine? Now, sound doctrine, doctrine is simply what you teach. So it's kind of a redundant statement. Uh, Teach sound teachings is what they're saying. And to protect the church, well, to protect the church in general, to protect everybody, protect your neighbor from telling them falsehoods. Well, one of the falsehoods that people have been telling everybody is that an elder is an office of the church. When Paul is talking about appointing elders, He's not appointing men to be elders. He's appointing men who are elders to offices of the church. And you say, well, why? what's really going on there? One of the best examples is to look at Peter when Peter is told that the daily ministration for the Greeks is being neglected. So, you know, is Peter in Greece? Why? Why are they talking about the daily ministration of the Greeks in Jerusalem. What, 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 is, what are they supposed to do about it? Well, that's what you see right out of the, the box in Acts is that the, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Syria and the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus are gathering up contributions that are prepared before Paul even arrives sometimes and not always, because he has to bring that up. I says he wants them to have the contributions all collected before he gets there, so that there isn't a delay, so that he and people like Barnabas can get those contributions and the supplies that they can purchase to where they need to go. Because that's part of the daily ministration. So the Greeks were being neglected in Greece, and we needed to take up a collection to help them out. So how do you do that? Well, you have to have a network already in place to do that. You you could go, you know, we had a, a local person here who was hit 
uh, well, actually were crushed by a car. They actually, their car went off the road and they flipped over and threw them out and, and, uh, they were in a big hurry and to pick up their son from public school and, uh, the car crushed him, broke all their ribs, broke their hips, both hips, I guess, concussion, uh, moved all their organs out of place and everything, but they've survived. Tough, tough lady. And, you know, people were there right away, lifted the car off of her and everything and air lifed her. And, uh, and it's going to be a long road back, but she's, seems to be out of the critical state and starting to recover. But um, the reality is all kinds of people are helping her and, and the community just had a, a, a big uh, kind of uh, fundraiser. And just at the fundraiser alone, they raised over $22,000 uh, one night just at the fundraiser. And they have little cans all over the county of people helping them out and all that's that's really good but $22,000 is a drop in the buck to her medical bills but the reality is is that you know I've seen where you can you can bring about these communities ways of caring for one another and the early church did this I mean people died in the early church people were persecuted they were killed but people also survived they they would throw them in the arena and the animals wouldn't touch them. And they, they they took them back and put them in prison and then they took them back and they put them in the arena and tried to get them to kill, be killed again and they wouldn't, the animals wouldn't touch them. And finally they hung them up and cut them all over so their blood was dripping so that the animals would attack them and they still had to kill them themselves. Uh, so what's, but that, was a witness to the people that there's something going on in Christianity that wasn't going on in their life. And they became somewhat fascinated because some people who said they were Christians, they were immediately devoured or they went running and screaming and repenting. But it was common in the Roman culture to test your faith in something, your belief in something, your testimony. Your life was a testimony to the Romans. So their idea of questioning almost always included torture. Because, that, I mean, it's kind of like the Apache. If you, if you take a particular stance, you had to be willing to defend that stance. And so they, they would test the metal of your determination of your faith, your pistos, uh, which is their, their idea of faith. It's because you, courage is important to them. And so they had that idea already there. Well, Christ is testing your faith. And and everybody came to Christ when he was you know, raising the dead, healing the sick. But the very first people he healed, he told them, don't, don't go tell anybody that you did this. And then he actually told the, some to go and tell the high priest, you know, that you were healed. But don't don't go public with it. Why would he hold that back? Why would he keep that back? Because as soon as people see that, why, my goodness, he healed them. He cured them. He raised the dead. You're going to get a huge crowd of people that are going to come because they all want to be healed and they all want to be, they want the benefits of salvation. But there are requirements of salvation. You had to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when Jesus began to explain what that looked like, 
people started falling away, making excuses. They didn't want that kind of, you know, they they wanted salvation, but they didn't want to have to give of themselves for that salvation. So there were a lot of people that, you know, when you became a Christian, you were out of one system and put into another system. And there were lots of charitable, hardworking, industrious people in that system. So while the systems of the world were failing, their social security, their welfare, which was all run through their temples, was breaking down and being becoming inadequate. The Christian community was developing a system that was extremely adequate. You know, you have the FEMA of the United States, which is the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency. But every congregation of God who sits down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and organizes themselves like the early church automatically becomes the faith emergency ministry auxiliary of the church. Because they're there to give contributions and take men like Barnabas and Paul and send them to where they're needed when they're needed. That's what the church was. That was the daily ministration. Sure, help out the widows in your own community and the needy in your own community. But clearly, from Acts, we see that they weren't just in some little local house church. That all the house churches were connected through a network that of tens, hundreds, and thousands that reached all across the Roman Empire right away. Peter was still alive. James was still alive. All these apostles were still alive and they already had a network that reached from Corinth to Galatia to Rome to to uh, Ephesus where if there was a dearth, you know, a major difficulty, they were able to send funds efficiently and quickly to where they were needed. That was the early church. And that was facilitated by both elder and deacon and overseers, which are also called bishops. Same word translated bishop is also translated overseer. But if I just say the word bishop today, you think of what you think of as bishop in the modern church. That's not what they were. They were different than that. So hopefully in our exploration of this term elder and eldership, we'll begin to draw a new picture so that you can seek the kingdom of God. Not so that you can worship the picture. So that you actually know what you're looking for. And then you can say, and in your spirit, and this is the way I got to where I am today, in my spirit, I would, I went to the seminary uh, half a century ago, more than half a century ago. And they would tell me this is what this means and this is what that means and this is how you interpret this and this is how you interpret that. I was attending St. Joseph's College back in 1962, 63. And I was saying, it doesn't seem right. So I'd ask questions. But I couldn't get the answers that seemed right. It took me years before I finally realized they don't know what they're talking about. They're wrong. There were some good men there, but they were wrong for a variety of reasons. So now we're going to share with you some of the reasons why they're wrong. But you're going to need the Holy Spirit to find out what is right. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Stay tuned.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, hopefully, we'll get into some of these questions this time. But first, we'll take one more look at something they call biblical eldership. Is spirit-appointed eldership? Well, yeah, but how do you mean that? What, what does that actually mean? Biblical elders uh, must be spirit-appointed, not self-appointed. Well, obviously, that's what we've been talking about from the beginning is that uh, have you created God in your own mind? Have you created an image of the kingdom of God in your own mind and now you're worshiping that image? Or are you really spirit-led? Are you really spirit-filled? And that's not emotionally filled, that's spirit-filled. I mean, are you blowing your top and getting angry at your spouse? Uh, are you uh, being fair with everybody? Are you keeping your word? Are you keeping the commandments? If you really love Christ, you will keep the commandments. That's what it says. It doesn't say you will try to keep the commandments. It means you will keep the commandments. If you're having a difficult time keeping the commandments, uh, such as, you know, adultery, stealing, uh, injuring other people, murdering other people, wanting to murder other people. Remember, if you want to commit adultery, they've already committed adultery in your heart. So, therefore, God is not in your heart. You know, not to the degree that he needs to be. And if you want to steal from your neighbor, if you want to kill your neighbor, God is not in your heart. You want to, how do you get God in your heart? You have to lay down your life so that you can pick up your life more abundant. And you have to lay down your life for his purposes. For his cause. So what was his cause? What was his purpose? Well, we'll get into all that. So, you don't get to create Jesus in your mind. You don't get to create God in your mind. You don't create the kingdom of God in your own mind. You have to be willing to see it as it really is. See the truth. So, one of the things they say is biblical eldership is pastoral oversight of the local church by a plurality of qualified elders. Now, the image that they, to some degree that's true. And that's the amazing thing is that many of the things that people say are true, but the application of what you think they're saying may not be true. Because, as I explained, elders are elders of families. You go back in the Old Testament, everywhere. The Pharisees wanted to create uh, an eldership that was an office of their church and claiming it back to the church in the wilderness, that the but the reality is, is the office of the church uh, is not one of authority of men over men. And uh, the office of elder is an older man who's the head of a family. That's what, he's the eldest of a family. That's the way when you had the term senate, that's the way you had when you had the term sheik, that's the way you had uh, all the languages, all the cultures, you had this term of an older person was a person of respect because your grandfather's where you came from. If it wasn't for what he did, you wouldn't even be here. But a lot of people hold their grandparents in contempt sometimes because they, but there some don't do not because everybody's parents are not as good as they should be. And to tell you the truth, parenting has gone downhill a great deal in the last century from what it used to be. And there's a concerted effort to demonize the previous generation and to turn against them. That's something that was warned about over and over again in the Bible, that children had to 
honor their father and their mother. They respect their father and their mother. The word honor had to do with take care of, provide for. Uh, when you were a young man and you were to tithe, you were to tithe to your father and your father tithe to the church. But what was the church doing? Was it just building big buildings and setting, creating, uh, you know, sing-alongs and, uh, to give you a good feeling? What was the mission of the church? What was it supposed to be doing? So anyway, get in your mind that an elder is the elder of a family, the head of a family. When they were having the loaves and fishes, there were 5,000 men present and their families. Those men were heads of those families. As heads of those families, they were elders. Those 5,000 men were required by Christ's command to his disciples to sit down in groups of 10. In ranks of 50 and ranks of 100, which accumulated up to the point of 5,000 men and their families sitting down, gathered together in groups of tens in ranks of 150 to the tune of 5,000 people. And then the distribution of loaves and fishes began. And there ended up being a surplus. And the miracle of that is still not understood to this day. I'm not going to explain it to you now. You just have to figure out why was he requiring that. It's right there in the text. He required them to sit down in that that pattern first. And that is the pattern of the early church. Elders, you get baptized and you and all your family would be saved. Because it was understood that you as a child as a as a son or daughter belonged to your father and your father and your mother were one flesh one that that was a striving men and women were not at each other's throats all the time there was an enmity between them since the fall but the more we get closer to the tree of life that holy spirit the less that enmity is there but they were in order to survive, they were working together. They weren't, you know, men weren't going around oppressing their wives all the time. I mean, there obviously were men who were oppressing, they were oppressing each other. There were Cain's and Nimrod's. That's how you get to Cain and Nimrod. First, if you want to oppress a nation, first you oppress your wives. You know, that's, that's the temptation. But if you love your wives as Christ loved the church, then you have a different result. You'll have a different result in your family. Which is why in First Timothy, they talk about these characteristics of an elder. You know, uh, they talk about, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now the muzzling of the ox has to do with elders who become ministers. But every elder, every head of every family, should be counted worthy of double honor, that double gifts, uh, double aid, if they are good elders of their family and their family is producing well. And, you know, their, their children are all 
uh, hardworking, industrious, upright individuals uh, who have a moral character about them. If their family's all falling apart, you do not want to pick that elder to be the minister of your church. And this is what they're trying to tell you. So you're looking out amongst yourselves to find men you trust. How do you, how come you trust them? Because you see they do a good job as heads of families, as elders. And then you appoint those elders to be the deacons and bishops of your church, the overseers of your church. But as elders yourself, because you're picking them, you have oversight. If you see them not doing a good job, stop picking them. You remember your offerings to the minister, the honor that you give to the minister, which is your offering. Not That word honor in the Hebrew means to fatten, to strengthen. That honor that you give to them is your votive offering. Every time you give to their minister, you're saying, I think you're doing a good job. That minister then is going out and serving the people, taking care of the needy, practicing pure religion, you know, providing for the widows and orphans and the needy of your society, including the people who lost their homes in paradise, California. You know, if we had a church down there and church members down there, everybody in the network would know about it right away. And we would be getting aid to them and they could help us direct aid to their other neighbors. And who do you want to help the most? Those who have the character of Christ dwelling in them. And some of those people will be in the network and some of those people may not be in the network yet. But if you help them out, suddenly they will say, I want more of that. And that's why how Christianity spread so fast is the dearth in the land, the difficulties in the land. And they saw Christians helping Christians and they said, boy, that really works. But there'll be another group that will be jealous because they say, well, wait a minute. Those Christians are not paying in to our system of social welfare because they were separate. They were only separate. They couldn't make themselves separate. When When John the Baptist was baptizing people in the kingdom of God, they they started learning to help one another out and take care of one another. You know, I mean, if somebody had no coat amongst their congregations and somebody else had two, they shared and they did the same in meats. But they still had to pay into Herod's system. If they had been a part of Herod's system, they had to pay into Herod's system. And, and Herod was joining up with Rome. He had to pay into the Roman system. But when the Pharisees commanded that anyone who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out of that system of the synagogues, of their congregations, which was run through their government temple, they were no longer going to get welfare. We see the blind man's parents worried that we can't, we can't profess Jesus or we'll be cast out. We're not going to get any more aid from the government. But the blind man said, no, I can't do anything else. So he was cast out and Jesus went and found him and brought him in to this outer system that was taking care of the needy through a system of elders and deacons. You know, the same word that we see translated deacon is also translated minister. Why they translated deacon in one place and minister in another, I'm not sure. That was their choice. But these are ministers of the kingdom of God. And they were clearly taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. While the world was taking care of one another through their free bread systems, 
But they were not doing it through faith, hope, and charity. They were doing it through exercising authority one over the other and forcing the contributions of the people. And so, therefore, the benefits of those systems were what they call the wages of unrighteousness. And so now they're, they're in the Gospels, they're telling you, well, this is how you do it, how you pick ministers. And Peter, like I said, Peter says, Look out amongst yourselves and pick men that you trust. When they, those Greek ministers were not able to fulfill pure religion amongst the Jews that were Greeks and Christians, they said, look out amongst yourselves and pick men you trust and we will appoint them over this business of waiting on tables. And the word tables there, that's the same word we see Jesus tipping over the tables in the temple. It's the same word. But it's also the same word that is translated in the same Bible as bank. So what were they doing? Seven men picked to do banking for the kingdom so that you were able to move funds from Jerusalem to Greece to help them out in their time of need in their daily ministration. Well, how would you help people in Paradise, California? If we had, you know, ten congregations, a hundred people, a hundred families. That could be a thousand people in Paradise, California that we have to go and help. Everybody in the network, or what we call the living network, which is the church. The church was a living network. The early church was. There, there's disaster in Paradise. How do we help them? Take up a collection in this little congregation over here and this little congregation over there and this little congregation way over there. And how do they get the money? Oh, we put it in an envelope and we mail it and it all goes to one place and then they, how do you get it down there? Well, if you have this network and you have a His Church Credit Union, say, which is like banking but not for profit. You know, it's a, a credit union is a charitable organization. They, Unlike a bank, they can actually forgive loans. Say you had a His Church Credit Union and all the congregations were a part of that credit union. They could move funds. They could they could have a guy who just saying, you know, I want to hire a trucker over here. I want to load up with bottled water. And, and I want to go here and get, you know, we got people loading up clothing and supplies. Because people lost everything. And the house burns up, their clothes burns up. We had the same problem on weed, and we sent people down there. I don't know anybody in Paradise, California. I don't know that there's anybody in our network there, because our network isn't that big. I mean, it's all over the place, but there's not millions of people seeking the kingdom of God. They're all following these people trying to teach you biblical eldership as an office of the church. And we're going to show you some of the other things they say that's just flat out in opposition to what the early church was doing. I'm not questioning the individual, but that what they know, their knowledge is incorrect. Their epistemology is inaccurate because they don't really know what that early church was doing. They're not doing it. And they're not teaching elders of the community, which are elders of families, how to do it. And they they think that somehow or other that the ministry you pick are spiritual guides. No, the spiritual guide is the Holy Spirit. And people go to church because it makes them feel good. Because the church is their comforter. 
It's not the Holy Spirit that's their comforter. It's the church is their comforter. So they have to keep going back to church to get a fix. A dopamine fix. And they sing songs to get that dopamine fix. There's nothing wrong with singing the songs. But if you're using it as a substitute to the Holy Spirit, if you're using that emotionalism as a substitute for the Holy Spirit, then there is something wrong. So, why do I even suggest that that's not the Holy Spirit? Because they're works. Their works are not the works of the early church. Oh, they give a little charity here and there, but it, it, 90% of the care of the widows and orphans in your society today is done through men who exercise authority one over the other. It is not done through the church. It is not done through free will offerings of the people. It is not done through faith, hope, and charity. It's done through systems that covet their neighbor's goods, that take away from one class of citizens to give to the other. That's completely contrary to the gospel of Christ. Completely contrary to what the church was doing. And it is in conformity with the system that most often persecuted Christians. Like the system of Marcus Aurelius. Systems of Tiberius. Although Tiberius was starting to change a little bit, but then he died. But, you know, Claudius banned thousands of Christian Jews from Rome because they were so disruptive, because they were offering an alternative system based on faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty, of individual choice. So he's right that the elders of the congregations of the people offer a plurality of oversight, pastoral oversight, because they're deciding who amongst them they trust to do the job of the church. And the job of the church was, in the practice of pure religion, was the taking care of the needy of society. Whether they're widows and orphans, or their houses all burned down, or there was a flood, or whatever it was, they were taking care of one another. They weren't going to Rome and praying to the Roman gods for their benefits. Hugely different. So if you, if you read on in there, they talk about in, uh, some of these other verses like 18, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's the minister who has the job of seeing to the needs of the people. Uh, almost all of our ministers are unpaid. I mean, there actually, there is no paid ministers, no salaried ministers in the the network of the church. Uh, they, the ordained ministers operate by faith, hope, and charity, and they're almost entirely self-supporting. They receive some aid to help out other people with, but if they got none of that aid, they would be getting by themselves. They would not be able to do as good a job. Uh, because, you know, like we have numerous websites, we put up all of our material for free. Uh, you can download hundreds and hundreds of audios. Uh, you can download YouTube videos, no charge. You can get, get almost every single thing that we have free online. You don't even have to sign up for anything to get access to this information. You don't have to give us your email. And, you know, you're going to have pop-ups that say, you know, like, what's your email and what's your address? And we don't we don't require that. But also, 
if you live in paradise and you've been reading our websites and reading all the books that are free online and all this stuff and we don't know you, then we aren't going to come to paradise and help you. You have to come and gather. You have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and come together to help others. If you want to be saved, you have to come together to save others. To be there for others. Don't wait till your paradise burns down. Start now. Don't put it off. Go to preparing you. Go to hisholychurch.org and join the network. And then join the living network. And then start learning what it means to be a Christian, an elder in your family, caring about others as much as you care about yourself. In hopes that when your time of need comes, there will be men there and elders there that will send aid to you. Because that's how we operate. It's not a contract. We don't bind you. The ministers of the church had no authority over other people. They had authority over what you chose to give them. But they had no authority over other people. The common uh, thing that you see in many churches today is they pick a board of elders. It's just a few of the men of the church, and they call that the board of elders. You can't find this anywhere in the Bible. And then, uh, well, actually, you can find it, but it's over on the pagan side. And the donations of the people all go into a common treasury that the board of elders takes care of. So if the board of elders, if any of those elders contribute, then they run around the table and sit on the other side and decide where the money goes. So they haven't really given it up yet. They're still in control of it. The true pattern of the church is that all the elders in congregation and their families give to the minister they see doing the actual job. And then he takes what they give him and he does the job with it. But what we have is the board of elders deciding where all the money goes and then paying a salary to some minister who's supposed to stand up there on Sunday or Sabbath and make everybody feel like they're full of the Holy Spirit by that endorphin release and comfort that he is providing. And they have lots of very clever ways in order to make you think that the Holy Spirit is present, they speak in tongues and all these things. Much of that is a fraud. You know, the devil's very good at imitating that which is righteous. And unfortunately now a lot of people are going to say, oh, he's saying that my church is filled with demons? Well, are you taking care of the needy of your society or do you actually just go to church and then have the government take care of the needy of your society? The governments who exercise authority and take away from your neighbor. Because that's the works I see in most churches. And it's not the works of Christ. It's why Christians were persecuted. They did it a different way. And that way was called the way. And that's what Christianity was. In uh, verse 19 it says, Against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Well, that's a common thing. That's how you pick your ministers. You One man can't pick a minister. He can pick it for himself. But you need two people picking that minister, two or more, before we will recognize that minister. Remember, Peter said, look out amongst yourselves and find men you trust and we will appoint them over this business. Why? I thought you were electing 
the guy by, you know, looking out amongst yourself and you all pick this guy and then he's that guy. But no, look out amongst yourselves, pick men you trust, and then you still needed the ministers that were appointed the kingdom to recognize that individual. So now you have double oversight. You have oversight from the ministers of ministers, and you have oversight from the elders who have chosen this individual. And so if you get two or more elders who pick a person, then that person becomes eligible for recognition by the church. And the churches, this is one of the big problems with home churches, is they're all little isolated home churches. That's one of the big problems. Another big problem is, you know, they have charity, but it's not very organized. The early church was extremely organized, right out of the box. I mean, they were so organized, that's what scared the emperors probably more than anything else. Uh, is that the Christians, the, the what they call the union and discipline of the Christians. And that union and discipline, that was personal discipline of each individual elder. It's not discipline from the top down, it's from the bottom up. They were organizing themselves. They were choosing who, what, who's the ten I'm going to sit down with. Why do they even name ten? Why can't we sit down with fifteen families? Well, you certainly can. But once you get to twenty families, you should divide off into two tens. In ranks of one hundred. So if you have two hundred families, you don't have two hundred families in one church. You have ten families in each congregation. And each congregation gathers together with another congregation until you have ten congregations. And then the ministers of each of those congregations pick a minister. It doesn't necessarily have to be a paid position or anything. Certainly he should be helped out with his expenses. And certainly has to receive the contributions of the people. But he's only serving ten families. You know... Where you work a minister to death is you got one guy who's got a min, you know, a church ministry of 500 families and he's supposed to be pastor to every single one of them. And then they use him like they use bartenders and psychiatrists that go that to them with every problem. Every elder has a portion of that pastoral ministry themselves. Back to those sheep. Those blackface sheep, they all knew they wanted to go here, wanted to go there. They're all looking for the clover here and there, the greenest grass here and there, because they're all about filling their bellies. But the rain sheep, they want to fill their bellies, but they also have this desire to stay together. Makes this shepherd's job much easier. If somebody starts wandering off, another one will bat and say, hey, where are you going? And oh, yeah, yeah, I got to stay with you guys. And you, I mean, it's amazing. See, hundreds of sheep in the mountains, shoulder to shoulder. Each sheep, their right shoulder is touching the left shoulder of the sheep next to them, and on and on and on, and a straight line all the way across the desert, and they all have their heads down, and they're grazing. They're together. Amazing. And they chose to be together. That's the spirit that you need to find in your church, and it needs to be in every elder of your church. But we're going to go into this a little bit deeper when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about this idea of elders and eldership. And once you understand that an elder is the head of a family and that 
the heads of the families that had all this good report about them that we see listed off in Timothy and Titus were often appointed to roles within the church, to the offices of the church. Because two reasons. One is because of the fact that by their works you will know that this is a good family. And two is because the people trusted those individuals. They were chosen by the people. Because what in the world, why would you pick a minister that nobody liked? I've actually seen churches do this. You know, especially the real authoritarian top-down churches where they, you know, some church, they lose their pastor and then they apply to the bishop and the bishop sends them a new minister. And nobody likes them. And they spend years trying to get rid of them. The elders can't even get get it long and get rid of them. Because they, they, they figure a bad minister is better than no minister. In the kingdom of God, the way it was organized, the kingdom that was appointed to the apostles is the kingdom of God. Which is is beyond just the the, the uh, first twelve apostles. Even Jesus says that there are others, he says. That besides the apostles, that you know that people didn't know about. So whoever they are, and we we see them kind of show up here and there, and people call them angels and what have you. And but there are men, it says, standing over, dressed in white, that begin to instruct the apostles that why do you look upward? Don't you know he's going to come? So who are they? <laughs> who are those men? Uh, so there was a lot more going on there than you're going to find out just by, you know, reading the Bible. You you see reference to it, but it just doesn't go into the detail. It doesn't really go into much detail about what's going to be in the heaven after you die. What happens after you die? I mean, there's a lot of speculation, but we don't really know. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is what you do now. The kingdom of heaven is a now thing. What are you doing now? So, Understanding now that an elder was the head of a family and the responsibility of eldership is in that elder head of the family shifts responsibility from the pastor, your your, your deacon, let's use the word deacon there, your minister, back to the family. Well, if you want your rights back, you have to take your responsibilities back. And the nature of the church does that. It puts the responsibility back in the hands of the elders of each family. So you, you go and you read First Timothy 5.20 and it says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, messengers, whatever they are, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach. Now, that's a very metaphorical statement. Uh, but there's actually a medicinal thing in drinking a little wine. But the drink no longer water. 
and eat water alone, but take a little wine for thy stomach. What is that really all about? Well, we'll have to go into that another time because we won't have a time to get to the questions if we stop at that. But there are lots of metaphors in the Bible. It says, keep thyself pure. And then they say, drink no longer water, but a little wine for thy stomach sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before a judgment. And some men, they follow after. Likewise, also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand. And they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So anyway, so that's why you're looking for men that you can trust. And you, you look at how their lives are put together and how they handle their own families. And then they may be suitable for the offices of the church. But the offices of the church are to return every man to his responsibilities, his rights, his possessions, and to his family. And so the idea uh, that somehow the elder is going to exercise authority is completely, over people, is completely a bogus and misrepresented idea. They go on to say, Biblical eldership promotes the true nature of the the New Testament church. The church is a family of God, and thus its leadership structure should harmonize with and promote the family nature of the church. Actually, if you didn't add that family nature of the church, well, actually, you could put that there. That's the thing with words. Lots of different ways to take them. The church... His job is that really that what we see in Leviticus 25.10. And he shall hollow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants, all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And so what does that mean? And ye shall return every man unto his possession. And ye shall return every man unto his family. And so the elders of the congregation of the people is the heads of every family. And they have the the exercise of their responsibility to their family and to their neighbor, loving their neighbor as themselves, and to the church for that ministry is the biblical eldership of the church. And you cannot do that effectively unless you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So that's that's extremely important that you do that. Biblical eldership provides leadership of the church. Well, yes, but the church is not ruled from the top down. It's ruled from the bottom up. And it doesn't mean that you get to tell your ministers what to do. You get to tell them what to do in the sense that you get to decide whether or not you want to contribute to them. Hopefully, they're not going to accept contributions. And I've had a quarter of a million dollars offered me if I would do something that went against my conscience. I mean, he didn't say, I want you to do something against your conscience. He wanted me to do something. I wouldn't do it. I didn't get the quarter of a million dollars. Uh, you cannot, that's why he's not supposed to be lovers of filthy lucre or take bribes. He's got to be following the Holy Spirit. That genuine, genuine accountability needs to be the responsibility of every elder of every family. 
He goes on to say, because of our beliefs in the realities of sin, human depravity, and Satan, we should require that the people in positions of authority within the church have genuine peer accountability. Well, as soon as you say authority within the church, what do you mean by that? And this is this is why it's important to define these terms. The ministers of the church have no authority over the people. They cannot force the contributions of the people like the church of the world. You know, the, the welfare systems of the world. They force the contributions of the people. They even regulate, heavily regulate, the priests of the world. Priests of the world are the people who divide the bread from house to house. They're the people who distribute welfare, Medicare, Medicaid. They're all under regulations. They're heavily regulated by some sort of authoritarian body that comes down from the top. The kingdom of God is the opposite of that. The only authority that a minister has is over his choices. And his choices are only over that which is freely given to him. And all the other ministers cannot force him to do with what has been given to him by their will. It is his responsibility to seek the Holy Spirit and guidance as to what he's going to do with what was given to him. We cannot hew the stones of the altar, the, our fellow stones in the altar of God. We cannot regulate them. What we can do is if we see him misusing the funds according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in us, we can say, I can have no part of you. And there's a process which we see in Matthew, I think, 18, where you need to take this. If somebody is doing something that you think is incorrect, you take it to him. You take it to him with other witnesses. And then you bring it before the whole church. And you say, I, I can't be a part of what this guy's doing. Uh, I, I think he, what he's doing is, is not righteous. It's, it, it may be, you know, it's not a matter of my biblical interpretation. It's a matter of being led by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to dictate to other people how they, but I'm, I'm going to either recognize or not recognize that I don't think this is of the church. And so I'm saying that this, these interpretation of biblical eldership that are provided by this particular group and many, many other groups is incorrect because they think that an elder is an office of the church when it's actually an office of the family. And the only way to return the rights to the people that God has bestowed upon them, because they've lost those rights, most people have lost access to those rights because they're in debt, because they have become entangled again in the elements of the world, uh, because their church is not providing the, uh, the, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Their church is selling people, oh, you need bread. You actually want real bread. You want real food. You want real clothing. You want real shelter. Oh, oh, I thought you just wanted spiritual shelter. If you want real stuff, you got to go to the world. And the world has priests, which they call administrators, of their welfare systems. And you just make your prayers, excuse me, did I say prayers, applications to them. And they will give you what they either have or they'll borrow money to get what you need and they'll give it to you. But of course, whatever they give to you, they have taken away from somebody else by force. Your priests are the priests of force if you look to the world. 
Now, that's a huge idea to accept. And a lot of people will walk away. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I have to give up Social Security and welfare? I didn't say you had to give those up. I said you have to seek the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is providing all the benefits of society through faith, hope, and charity. That's going to be a process for everybody to get to that point. You may still have to pay your tally of bricks. You may still have to take your Social Security check. But how much of your day-to-day time are you using to spread the gospel of the kingdom? You can't do that with just a few hours a week. you got to do that with every breath. And if you join the network, we'll show you things that you can do. And we'll try to provide ways that you can do them. And we're already doing that. For those people who want to... You know, I saw this morning on Facebook, there was a discussion among somebody and they they were constantly sending web pages from preparing you to explain their different positions. And uh, some people had their own web pages that they'd already set it up uh, and their own MIMS that they already set up. But a great deal of what they're putting in their MIMS and their web pages they got from us. They themselves, though, are not actually members of congregations of the people that haven't yet sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands with us. But I see that spirit beginning, you know, and they need to think about it. That's fine to think about it. But where are they going with this? You know, are, are they sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Are they actually starting to create the circulatory system of the body of Christ, casting their bread upon the waters? looking out amongst themselves, finding men they trust. And, you know, it's a process. And you're not only going to need humility, but you're going to need forgiveness. And you can't really have much forgiveness without humility. And you're also going to need that love and charity in action. You can't just sit in the pew and say, yeah, I love everybody. You got to get up and turn that love into action. So some of the questions that they came up was, how do you handle uh, doctrinal differences in a local church? Well, there is no, there is no doctrinal differences in the church because all of our doctrines come from one source, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations of what Jesus Christ said, but if Jesus didn't say it, it isn't a doctrine of the church, and. But the the church is not the end all. Uh, you need the Holy Spirit teaching you what Jesus really meant. We're going to tell you things about history and things about the different texts. We already have, you know, he mentions Romans 14 and 15. We, we've got a whole study uh, deal on Romans uh, with audios and side panels. And we're, we're trying to constantly improve that. There isn't a day goes by that I don't add some more information. This morning I added to numerous pages, uh, sometimes a little picture with uh, lines underneath it with links to other things, uh, sometimes just a paragraph, sometimes whole pages are added. All of these things linked and interlinked so that you can start putting together and understanding the words that you're reading in the Bible based on what those words meant at the time they were written. Because elder doesn't mean back then what people are saying it means today. Actually, though, the word elder, if you look it up, it it says an older man or older woman. It's the elder. 
And elder of what? Elder of a family. So that's that's what it means. That's what it meant back then. Way down, you go down third, fourth definition. We'll talk about elders as an office of the church. But that's not what it was back then. It was the elder of a family. But of course, Jesus was returning every man to his family. People don't know how to be a family. They don't know how to take care of one another in the family. And then how do you come together in free assemblies? If you want a free government, you have to have free assemblies. That means no taxes. Doesn't mean no tithes. It, you, tithe, why tithe? Tithe is from the word ten. Why from the word ten? People talk about tithing being ten percent. And maybe if all things are equal, it is, but they talk about three different kinds of tithing. So what is that all about? Well, you tithe to them according to their service. You give 10% according to their service? No. It's called tithing because there are 10 families in a congregation. And each one gives its share according to what it thinks is right. And hopefully, if the Holy Spirit is leading them, it will be right. And it will work out. Because God knows better than I know. So I can't tell you it has to be 10%. It has to be what God is putting on your heart. It doesn't have to go to me necessarily. If you if you see the work that we do of value, you can support our ministry. But you should be sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And that minister is not the curator of your soul. He's the curator of what your soul says to give him. And he is receiving that for the well-being of your neighbor in congregations and assemblies all across the world. And so he's going to have to sit down with other ministers in his congregation. He doesn't belong. He doesn't own you. People always say, this is my congregation. No, that's the congregation of Christ. It's not the congregation of the minister. It's the congregation that minister may be responsible for. If you're a hired shepherd of God, you don't own the sheep. That is not your sheep. That is not your congregation. Your congregation is the men you sit down with. That's the ranks of 100. Ten elders of families pick one minister. That's 11 men right there. That minister sits down with ten other ministers for the purposes of Christ, which are clearly at least to feed his sheep. His sheep. Not your sheep. Now those ten ministers pick a minister. That minister is now the overseer of 100 people. How does he oversee those people? By directing what they're supposed to believe? By becoming the comforter of those people? No. He's overseeing the contributions of those people. Telling those ten ministers, well... Steve says we have a need over here and Dave says we have a need over here but Dave's need is way bigger because Dave lives in paradise. Steve, they just have somebody who has pneumonia and they need help or was in a car accident. Well, we got to help them but we have a greater need over here. We have 10 families that lost their homes and their businesses. We have a real serious need over here. Well, that that overseer is helping them see where the real need is and 
They keep track of how much goes here and how much goes there so they don't waste resources. That's overseeing. It's overseeing things. It's not ruling over people. That overseer gets together with ten other overseers like him or nine other overseers like himself and they pick a minister. Now you don't just have thousands but tens of thousands of people that are going to know about your problem overnight and be able to move aid to you overnight or maybe open up their houses so that you have some place to live. Maybe you don't want to live in paradise anymore. Paradise is lost. And you may need to live somewhere else. I mean, that's what happened to the the Israelites or the Jews who were in Rome, who had become Christian, were suddenly kicked out of Rome. They had to leave. It wasn't a fire. They just had to leave. It was a good thing that a lot of them left. Because during the the I say Inquisition, during the Nero's time, thousands of those Christians were killed. So those ones that left, even though they had the hardship of leaving, fortunately, uh, Paul was in the, and Priscilla and Aquila were building tents, so they were able to leave with some comfort. I remember when people suddenly had to leave, uh, was it Sarajevo, and during the, the conflicts there, and people were escaping, there were people walking over the mountains, and they didn't even have shoes. When the enemy found them trying to escape, they took their shoes away from them. And made them walk barefooted. They thought it was funny, I guess. So he had little children and no shoes. And when they got over the mountains, they had no tents. And the nights were below freezing. They People died because of that. And governments came in and supplied tents. But why aren't we doing that for ourselves? When you depend upon the government, this is how you get tyranny. This is what Polybius says. Go read what Polybius said. What, what, where Rome was going. They, people were becoming accustomed to the idea of living at the expense of others. And implemented those benefits through force. You don't want to be doing that. So anyway, doctrinal issues, the doctrines of Christ, they're right there. And we talk about that. But that's working out your salvation with uh, fear and trembling. He goes on to say, my experience, those who dogmatically persist in holding their doctrinal views, advocating these views publicly and correcting the uh, the opposing views as well, tend to justify their actions as necessary because the gospel is at stake. They know that squabbles over minor issues is not biblical but view their stance as an essential part of the gospel. Thus, they cannot be silent over such matters. Well, I'm not silent. You need to understand that the elders are the elders of families, and the church's job is to feed Christ's sheep, not make sheep of the people for themselves and for their benefit. Hence, we have no paid salaries. Uh, we are entirely dependent upon our own labor or the gifts, gratuities, and benefits of the elders of our congregations, of the congregations of the church. Because they're not really our congregations. They're, they're congregations that we're responsible for. But we want you to belong to yourself. And we want yourself 
to submit to the will of the Holy Spirit and the Father who art in heaven. And make his name hollow in your life by doing his will. Because only by doing that shall his kingdom come. And then you will have your daily bread, not from men who exercise authority, but from those who love you. So, there's a lot more to this. I didn't get all into the questions. I'll probably try to do that in the afternoon show if I can get back in time to do it. Uh, but uh, until then, I I want you to go to the network. Join the network. Join the living network. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and start turning around your thinking so that you become worthy of his gifts. God bless. Peace on your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.